Well, it is such a pleasure to welcome so many guests today. We're, we're so thankful that you're here with us. You know, I was leaving the house this morning about to get in the car and I could hear a woodpecker off in the distance kind of disturbing the peace, you know, the beautiful Sunday Easter morning. And I thought, you know, that woodpecker doesn't care uh, that today is Sunday. He doesn't care that this is Easter. He doesn't care that Jesus rose from the dead. And I thought, well, most of the people around him don't either. But I'm glad you do. And, and I'm glad that you have more spiritual sensitivity than a woodpecker. Uh, <laughs> and that you chose to be here today. So if you congratulate yourself on nothing else all week, congratulate yourself on that. But we are delighted that you are here. And Kelly, thank you for trying to handle the door here. If the offering is large enough today, we're going to get a latch for this. Uh, a, this is an old pulpit, by the way, right, William? Uh, William Haycock is here this morning. He helped us find this, uh, this pulpit years ago, uh, what, 50, 60 years ago. And um, it's, a, it's a, a lovely one, and we, we love it. But it does have this funny quirk, uh, but we won't let that uh, bother us too much. But we are really thankful that you're here. Let's bow in prayer as we begin, please. Father, as we have been reminded already, you are a loving and good God, and you gave your son to die for our sins, and you rose him from the dead. And Father, we cannot thank you enough. We pray that in these moments that we'll have a greater understanding of just how significant that is in each and every one of our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As many times as I have read and heard the accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus from the Bible, I still cannot fully imagine what it would be like, what it would have been like to have actually been there and to have stood there and watched him die. Can you? Do you think you can begin to imagine, to comprehend what that must have been like, to see a man nailed to a cross and watch him die? By the time he got to Golgotha, he'd already been beaten almost to death. So he was a bloody mess by that time that he got there. The nails were actually spikes, about six inches long. They were very carefully placed to cause maximum suffering and to minimize the risk of death coming too quickly. That was the whole idea, crucifixion. As common and as public as crucifixion was in the first century AD, it was considered impolite, even somewhat gross to talk about it because it was so horrible. It was considered an obscene act. And even the people who thought that it was acceptable as a form of punishment did not think it was acceptable to talk about it. That's reflected in the fact that we have four accounts in the New Testament of Jesus' death on the cross. And each one of them records his death, not by telling all the gory details that they could have told, but simply by saying they crucified him. Just three words in English, only two in Greek. They crucified him. But you see, they didn't need to say anything else because people in those days had witnessed enough crucifixions that they knew what that meant. Those two words said it all. 
nothing else needed to be added. And besides, what was important was not the details. What was important was the identity of the man who was suffering and dying on that cross. After he died, some six hours later, there was nothing left to do but to take the body down and to, and to bury it. Joseph of Arimathea and a man by the name of Nicodemus saw to that. And then those who had believed in him simply had to go away and try to reconcile in their minds the hope that they had had, that he was going to be Israel's redeemer with the disappointment that they now felt because he had died. But then the resurrection happened. The resurrection happened and that changed everything. No longer was Jesus the crucified criminal that people thought that he was. He was the risen Christ. And he proved it by coming out of that tomb on the third day after his crucifixion. He proved it by appearing to his disciples not once but over and over until there was no doubt in their minds that it was really him as unbelievable as this good news was. It was beyond question that it was really him, that he had really been raised from the dead. Later, another of his followers, the Apostle Paul, would write in Romans 1 and verse 4 that he was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, not in the weakness of death, but in the power of resurrection. Now, don't misunderstand what Paul's saying. Paul is not saying that the resurrection made him God's son. He doesn't say that. He says the resurrection declared him to be God's son. The resurrection demonstrated without doubt that he was, in fact, the son of God. But the resurrection didn't just change Jesus. It also changed his followers as well. It changed his disciples. According to the records that we have, only one of them, amazingly enough, only one of them was present when he died. That was John, who is referred to as the beloved disciple, or in the account of the resurrection, simply as the, the other disciple, not Peter, but the other disciple, never named in the Gospel of John. But he's the only one who actually witnessed Jesus' death. The rest were in hiding. They had all run away when Jesus had been arrested, just as he said that they would but now he appears to them, and that changes everything for them. See, the reason the Bible so carefully records all of these post-resurrection appearances, and there are several of them recorded, the reason they're recorded so carefully is because of all the tens of thousands of Jews who had been crucified by the Romans in the first century, only one of them ever came back. Only one of them ever rose from the dead. Only one of them ever came out of his grave. And they had to see him so that they could go and be his witnesses. Somebody had to testify to that fact. Somebody had to say, we know this message is true because we saw it. And so he appeared to Mary Magdalene and a group of other women who then went and told the male apostles who didn't at first believe it. And so Jesus then appeared to all of them except for Thomas. And later appeared to Thomas as well. Later, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. Most of whom, Paul said, were still alive some 30 years later. 
Finally, he appeared to Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle. And he persuaded even this hard-hearted chief of sinners, as he described himself, that he was who he had said that he was. And all of them, without exception, except one that we know of who died of natural causes, all of them died proclaiming the message that they had heard. They went from hiding to proclaiming. And they preached that message until the days of their death, every one of them. John 20, verse 19 says, the evening after the, even after the crucifixion, that the disciples were gathered together and the doors were locked because they were afraid. They were afraid, well, they came after him, they may come after us now. So they kept everything locked up tight and were in hiding. But then, according to the second chapter of the book of Acts, look at the contrast. The Holy Spirit comes on those very same men some 50 days later. And they begin to proclaim the good news that he was both crucified and risen. And that through him, through his death and resurrection, God offered salvation to everyone in his name. That was the change that occurred in those men. Once the resurrection happened, they were never the same. But it wasn't just their fear changing to courage that was different. The resurrection also changed their understanding of who Jesus was. See, we tend to think that they always got it, that they always knew, they always understood from day one who Jesus was. And the truth is they didn't. The Bible says that very clearly. The scriptures tell us that over and over they misunderstood. Over and over they tried to put him in, in the wrong slot. They tried to pigeonhole him where they thought he ought to be. And over and over they were beginning to find out that he was not who they had thought. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the final time and the crowds hailed him with shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, John chapter 12 and verse 16 says his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. In other words, what that's telling us is that prior to his death and resurrection, they had no thought whatsoever. They had no thought whatsoever that the one they were following was going to die for the sins of the world. They had no thought whatsoever that eternal life would become available through him to everyone who would ever live from that moment on on the planet. They had no thought of that. They did not understand, John says, until after he was raised. In the 24th chapter of Luke, my favorite resurrection, post-resurrection appearance, Jesus appears to two disciples walking on a road to a village called Emmaus. It's the evening after the, after the resurrection. And they're talking together and he begins to walk along with them and they don't know who he is. They don't recognize him. And one of them, we're told, was named Cleopas. The other one, for some reason, his name is never mentioned. I always told my students that his name was Bud. <laughs> A few of them wrote that in their notes. <laughs> but Cleopas and Bud were walking along on the road to Emmaus the evening after the resurrection. 
And they're talking, and Jesus comes alongside them, and he says, what were you discussing on the way? And they said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what's happened here in recent days? And he says, what things? And they said about Jesus of Nazareth, who, who was a man powerful in word and deed, and we had hoped, notice that, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Obviously now their hope was gone. And when he's on that road to Emmaus with them, appearing to the disciples, he says this to them. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And later on the day of Pentecost, Peter would declare to the religious authorities in Jerusalem or following the day of Pentecost, he would declare to the religious authorities that there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. You see how their understanding of Jesus had changed. They thought, first of all, well, he's just come to be the deliverer of Israel. He's come to kill Romans for us. He's come to set us free. And then after the resurrection, it finally becomes clear to them because he comes and explains it to them and shows them in all the scriptures and the greatest Bible class ever in the history of the world uses the whole Old Testament and explains to them all the things about himself, and finally they get it. And that's what Peter proclaims. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which you must be saved. They didn't know that prior to the resurrection, but they knew it now. So the resurrection changed everything, everything for them. Now, if the resurrection changed them so dramatically, what do you suppose it might do for you? What do you suppose it might do in your life? Because you see, you and I are part of the story of the resurrection too. Because until Jesus died and rose, we were all dead in our sins. We were all doomed to perish and be forever separated from God. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead, he says. He's talking to believers who now are alive because of Christ. But he said, you were dead. That's who we are in sin. That's what we are when, before we've come to Christ and had our sins taken away. We're dead. Nothing can get through to us. We can't change. We can't communicate. We can't do anything. He says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, following, uh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were just like everybody else, he says. We were all in the same boat. But then he gets to chapter 2 and verse 4, and he says, but God. 
Two of the most important words you'll ever read. But God, being rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. You see, since the resurrection has happened, it doesn't just change us. It changes eternity for us. It changes eternity for us. The promise of the resurrection is that Jesus can change your life from one of fear and uncertainty and alienation from God because of your sins to a life of hope and blessing and joy day by day. What is it that has hold of your life right now? What is it that's troubling you the most right now? What is it that's frightening you the most right now? What is it that is burdening you the most right now? Because of his resurrection, Christ can change it all and enable you to live in freedom and hope and joy. He can change you from a lost soul to one who will live forever with God. But here's even better news. That new life begins now. If you share in the death and resurrection of Jesus by becoming an obedient follower of Christ. Hear what Paul, whose own life was dramatically changed by the risen Christ, said about it. He was writing to the church in the city of Rome, and he said, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him. Watch this now. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He's telling the Romans, you cannot continue to live in sin because you died to sin. You were buried with Christ and you rose to a new life. And if you've been united with him in a death like his, you will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, it can be for you just as it was for Paul and for everyone else who has followed Jesus that your life can be completely a new life and a life that looks forward to eternity rather than looking at it in fear. I know that you may not have come here today expecting to have your life changed. I know there are a lot of reasons folks come to church on Easter Sunday. Whatever your reason, we're glad you're here. But you may have come with the thought of just celebrating a holiday. 
you may more skeptically have come with the idea that the whole resurrection thing is just a religious myth, but somebody urged you to come, and so you did, and we're glad that you did. Or you may have come thinking that Christians just observe Easter in order to glorify a doctrine that they hold peculiarly. But what I'm hoping this morning is that you will leave here convinced that Jesus both died and rose again and that his resurrection makes all the difference in your life and can make all the difference in your eternity. I'm hoping that you will want to join the millions of others who have said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that you will today want want to back that up by dying to sin in the act of baptism and being raised to newness of life with the confidence, the hope, the certainty that because you've been united with him in a death like his, you will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If that sounds like a change that you'd like to see in your own life, we're going to sing a song here in a few minutes and you're invited at that point to come and say so, and we'll help you. We'll walk you through that. Or if you're thinking about that, but you're not quite to that point yet, I'm hoping that before you leave here today, pull me aside and just say, we need to talk about this. I've got some questions. That's perfectly fine. None of us made this decision in a moment. And we'll walk you through that. We'll help you see what Scripture says. But whatever you do, don't leave here today without realizing the blessing that God has for you because of Jesus' resurrection. Don't leave here today without being changed. Jesus died and rose from the dead so that you will be. Let's stand together and sing that song. Kneel at the cross, Christ will meet you.